Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Moser. If any of you don't know me, I'm the uh, director of worship here, and uh, it's always a privilege and a joy for me when I get to uh, serve this different role in the service and preach and open God's Word with you. This passage we're going to be in this morning is a familiar one, and in fact, if you've been coming sometime in the past three years while I've been leading worship here, I've used this passage as a call to worship maybe the most out of any other passage. I love this it at least calls me to worship Christ. And so I hope that you'll find the same this morning as we get into it together. Would you pray with me before we begin? Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. And God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us, breathed out your divine word that we uh, might be complete. God, thank you that your word is living and active and powerful and that it has the power to pierce us and change us. And God, I pray that each of us would be uh, ready this morning to hear from what you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Your faith is under attack. We just finished a series in Revelation, so that probably doesn't come as a surprise to all of you. All throughout Revelation, we saw how the church is persecuted. And we can see, we can just look around at the world outside and see how our faith is being attacked. We've got people calling things that are evil good. The church is quite literally physically under attack, persecuted throughout the world, Christians being killed. But there's actually, I think, another more dangerous, more sinister attack on the church, and that is the attack that comes from inside of it. There are people in the world today who claim to be Christians, and yet they propose a false gospel. They will go around and say, yeah, no, I believe in Christ. He, I've, I've trusted in him for salvation. He's my savior. But did you know that Christ isn't actually God? The Bible doesn't actually say that he's God. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I believe. But did you know that you can't actually trust the Bible? How can you trust that thing? It's been changed a thousand times. We don't have the manuscripts. How do you know? We saw this in Revelation 2, if you remember back at the beginning of the book, those seven letters to the seven churches. Almost all those churches, they had false teaching there, and Jesus was telling them, Stop putting up with this false teaching. Get rid of it. What we see throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, and what we've seen true play out in history is that uh, there will come false teachers, false prophets from within the church. People who look like Christians claim to be Christians, but end up uh, not actually and pulling people away from the true gospel, making people shift from the hope in the historic true gospel. And in our passage today, in the first chapter of Colossians, this is Paul's exact concern for the Christians at the church in Colossae. You can go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 15, but before we get there, I just want to explain what's going on in this book. So Paul is writing to this church because he's concerned, because there's been false teaching given to these Colossian Christians. I just want to point out three verses to you. You don't have to turn to them, but... Colossians 2.4, Paul's writing them, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So there's people coming to these Colossian Christians saying, hey, listen to this, this makes a lot of sense. Are you sure Jesus is the only way? Are you sure you have to do this or that? There's plausible arguments and he's concerned about that. You've got Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So there's people in Colossians, in the, in the church at Colossae, who are saying, hey, but what about these spirits? What about this or that? It's not just Christ, it's all these other things, human philosophies. If 
Finally, verse 2.18, let no one disqualify you, Colossians, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up, and on and on and on. So this church in Colossae is under attack from false teaching, people who are saying, yeah, I know about Jesus, but what about angels? Yeah, I know, you know, Jesus is cool, but make sure you're also, you know, fasting seven times a week and praying all these different ways. If you don't do that, you're in trouble. So that's why Paul is writing them the letter. And before we get right into our verse 15 where we're starting this morning, Paul opens his letter. You can see there at the beginning of chapter 1, he's thankful for them in verse 3. He's thanking them for their faith. He's thankful for the faith they have in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he tells them what he's, gonna, he's been praying for them. He has not ceased to pray for them. And this is what he wants the Colossians to do. This is what he's praying for them. Verse 10, he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He wants them to bear fruit in every good work. He wants them to increase in the knowledge of God. He wants them to be strengthened with power and to endure with patience and joy. And Paul wraps up this opening to his letter in verses 13 and 14 by reminding the Colossians of the gospel. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul tells the Colossians, I want you to walk in a manner worthy. I know you're getting all these attacks. All these false gospels are being proclaimed. You need to walk in a manner worthy. And we might expect, he's, he's given them the gospel. You've been out of darkness and into light. So we might expect to land in verse 15 and go, all right, so tell us how to do that. Paul, what do we do? What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy? Practically, what should we not do? What should we do? And Paul eventually gets to that. But actually what we find in verse 15 is instead of jumping right into practically, what are you supposed to be doing? Paul zooms way back out and starts this beautiful hymn about who Christ is. Before he gets to the do this or don't do that, there's something more important that the Colossians need to know to defend themselves against attacks on their faith. And we find that in verse 15. If you'll read along with me, we'll go ahead and read the whole passage uh, for today, 15 to 23. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's Paul's main point to the Colossians. This is what he wants to drive home to them. This is what I think Scripture is driving home to us this morning, which is this. Because the preeminent Christ has reconciled all things, we should continue steadfastly in the faith. That's the main point of this scripture right here. That's what Paul wants for the Colossians. That's what scripture wants for us this morning. Because the preeminent Christ has reconciled all things, we should continue steadfastly in the faith. 
well, how exactly does this preeminence of Christ, how exactly does this beautiful Christ hymn, thinking all about this Christology, the study of Christ, who Christ is, how does that help us continue in our faith? That's what we're going to see as we walk through the passage this morning. And I just want to, we'll start with these first three verses. I'll read them again, and we'll see how this has to do with us continuing steadfastly in our faith. So the first three verses, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. The first point that we see here, the first reason why we should continue steadfastly in our faith is because Christ is the Lord of all creation. Paul goes and blows us up way cosmic view of Christ. And he runs through, this is a famous uh, Christology passage, which basically means the study of Christ. Who is Christ? How do we know who he is? What what is he like? What all is about him? And uh, so this is typically read as a famous passage where you go, you want to learn about who Christ is. So Paul blows it out. He says, look at who Christ is, this Lord of all creation. And the reason he does that is so that we'll continue in our faith. We're just going to walk quickly through these first three verses and look at all these different uh, images here that we have for Christ. Um, We're not going to spend a ton of time on all of them because you could really spend months just on this passage. You could break down every word for a whole sermon. We're not going to do that this morning. If you're interested in a slightly deeper dive into this passage, if you go on our website back in 2016, uh, Pastor Lucas preached through this passage for three weeks leading up to Christmas. So you want to, you know, if if I'm talking about the image of Christ, you're like, wait, I didn't understand. I want more on that. We have more of that. Uh, on the website if you're interested. But we'll just go ahead and walk through these verses, starting in verse 15. He is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God. Basically what this is saying is we have this invisible, immortal God, immortal God who's in the heavens, and multiple times throughout Scripture, Scripture tells us no one's ever seen God. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, Moses gets close, so, you know, people pass by, you see his back, all that type of thing, but nobody's ever really seen God. But it's in Christ, the image of God, that we are able to actually know him and see him. First uh, John, or sorry, John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So it's in Christ that we can actually know God. That's what it means that Christ is the image of God. It says it again in John 14.9. Jesus says this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is literally the image of the Father. The way that we know God is through the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And really what this means for us, that he's the image of the invisible God, is that Jesus is in fact God incarnate, God himself come down to earth. Christians have believed from the very beginning that the God that we serve, the God that we worship and believe in is a triune God, that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three are God, and Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And, And when you know Christ, that's how you know the Father. So that he's the image of the invisible God. Then Paul goes on. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now we're going to spend a little more time on this one because I think this one trips people up. Also from the beginning of our faith, we've believed in a triune God. We've also had lots of people saying that, wait a minute, Jesus isn't God. This is probably the number one heresy in the history of the church. All kinds of heresies and errors about who Christ is. And many of those people will point to this verse and say, look, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. How could Christ be God? It says right here, he's the first one created. And that is not what this verse says. And I just want to walk quickly through with you why that's not what this verse says. So when someone says that to you and they go, well, what about Colossians 1? 
you can say back to them, yeah, look at Colossians 1. He's God. So firstborn of all creation. I think this means that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And there's three different ways we can tell that. The first way is to just look at that word firstborn. It is just a normal word. It is what it says, firstborn. So like Jesus is Mary's firstborn, same word. In the Old Testament, you've got all these kings, the firstborn of this, the firstborn of that. That's the word that it is there. What we also see in scripture is that word for firstborn gets kind of plucked out of its context as a literal firstborn child to become a title. It represents something. The firstborn was the, the head of all the brothers. The firstborn got the biggest inheritance. The firstborn was kind of first among all of his siblings. And so in scripture, we see that word taken and used as a title for not someone who's literally the firstborn son, but for someone who is a king over all. Uh, I'm going to put this verse on the screen. It's Psalm 89. I think we got it. I forgot to tell Nathan, so I was texting him to put it in there before I came up. (laughs) Psalm 89. Just before we get to these verses, it says in, in verse 20, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So in Psalm 89, we see God talking in the first person about David. He's saying all these things he's going to do for David. And then when we get to verse 26, he, David, shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I, God, will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is the sense in which Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation. David was not literally the firstborn. In fact, he was the youngest brother, the least significant brother. And God says, I'm going to make you the firstborn, not literally physically, but now you're the highest king over all kings on the earth. You are the highest one. You're the firstborn. It's a title of kingship. And so in Colossians 1, we see Christ is the firstborn over all creation, meaning that he's the king of all creation. He's over all of it. It's his creation. Another way you can tell that this doesn't mean that Christ is uh, created first is that word of. That word of doesn't necessarily mean part of. So you see he's called the firstborn of all creation. And we do this in English too. The word of works different ways. You can say, hey, there, I've got a block of wood. And everybody knows when you say that, the block is made of wood. It's a part of the wood. That's one way we use of. But the other way is kind of, uh, we use it possessively. So you could say, that guy is the coach of the Little League team. And when you say that, you're not like, oh, so he's seven years old and he's hitting the t-ball with everybody else? No, he's the coach of the team. He doesn't go out on the field and bat. He tells the players to go what to do. He's coach over the team. He's not a part of it, but it's his team. And so that is the way that of is being used here in this verse. Christ is the firstborn of creation. Not that he's a part of it, but that it's his creation. He's like the coach of the team. He tells creation what to do. He's in charge of creation. He doesn't go out and bat. He's over all of it. Finally, there's one really easy way to tell that this does not mean that Christ is created. And that is to just keep reading into the very next verse. Look down at this verse and see what it does here. So it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, 4. When you see 4, that means that the next sentence is going to explain the sentence that just happened. You could put because there. The 4 is going to explain why is Christ called the firstborn of all creation. The next verse tells you why he's called that. So let's see what it says. He's the firstborn of all creation. 4, because... By him, all things were created. So how could Christ be a part of creation when all things were created by him? All you have to do is continue reading into the next verse to see that this does not mean Christ is created, but in fact that he is over all creation. 
And it explains, why is he called the firstborn? Because he created it. That's why he gets the title. It's because he created it in the first place. So far from this passage being, uh, oh no, what does this say? That Christ is not, that Christ is created? No, in fact, this passage strongly affirms the fact that Christ is God. Eternally, preexistent, before there was anything, Christ was there uh, creating the world out of nothing in the very beginning. We'll continue on into verse 16. So Paul told us Christ, he's, he's supreme over all creation. He's the king over all creation. And what does he mean by all creation? Verse 16 and 17, let's read these again. He's uh, in heaven, he, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Paul is not leaving anything out here. He's saying, yeah, everything was created by Christ. Heaven and earth, check, Christ created it. Uh, Things you can see, anything you can see, yeah, Christ created it. Things you can't see, spiritual powers, things going on behind the scenes, yeah, Christ created that too. And he he does this long list of thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He's trying to tell the Colossians, hey, guys, Christ is over all of it. When people come and try and tell you that you also have to worship angels, he's over the angels. What are you talking about? That makes no sense. uh, Paul leaves nothing out. Christ is over everything. Not only did he create it, uh, but in verse 17, we see that he's before all of it and that in him, all things hold together. Literally, right now, at this very second, everything that exists is being sustained by Christ. Everyone who's sitting in here this morning, the entire globe hanging in space with gravity working, it's all because Christ is sustaining it right now. Literally everything, non-believers, believers, Rulers, authorities, demons, angels, everything is happening, he's sustaining it. It couldn't exist if he wasn't at this second sustaining it. And on top of that, verse 17, uh, verse 16, the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Not only did he create all of it, not only is he sustaining all of it right now, but the whole purpose of all of it at the end of time, the whole reason for everything that exists is Christ. All of history leads up to him Everything he created is for him, and he continues to sustain it for him. It's not because he wants us to keep living our life and we haven't gotten to do this or that yet. He sustains us for himself at the end of the day. So what does any of this have to do with us persevering in our faith? What does any of this have to do with us standing firm and not shifting from the hope of the gospel? I think it has everything to do with us not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And the first reason is this. We need to actually have a correct understanding of who Christ is in order to combat when people come and start telling us, hey, well, Christ isn't really God. You need to be able to know what the Bible says about who Christ is so you can be firm in your faith so that when a false gospel is presented to you, you don't shift your hope to a false thing, but you stay steadfast in the true, real thing. Again, Paul is very concerned for these Colossians that a misunderstanding might get in there and cause them to be disqualified, verse 18. So we need to make sure that we understand who Christ is in order to stay firm in our faith. And so how do we do that? The main number one thing you can do to learn about who Christ is, to know true things about Christ, is to read his words. We have amazingly preserved for us over 2,000 years and more God's words, breathed out, holy, inspired words. And in here, this is the primary way God has revealed himself to us. If you want to know about Christ, if you want to know what's true, If somebody comes up to you and says something weird and you want to know if it's true, right here. This is what we need to be doing, reading all the time to understand and actually know when a false thing comes at us. 
But I think it's more than just you and your Bible. It's not like attacks are coming at us and you're just at home alone and you've got your Bible and you're just trying to fend them off. There's nothing else you can do. You've just got your Bible and you. No, Scripture gives us all kinds of tools to help uh, stand firm in our faith. Christ, in his uh, making of the church, has given us all kinds of things to help us stand firm. And one of the main things that helps us stand firm in our faith is to not do it alone. If you look over to uh, Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what we want. We want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly so we know when somebody attacks our faith what's true. How do we do that? Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So one of the main ways that you can guard yourself against false teaching, one of the main ways that you can stand firm in your faith and not shift in your hope is to come to church and to sing together. When we come here on Sunday mornings and you hear your brothers and sisters singing, you're encouraged. You hear them praising God. It spurs you on to praise God. You sing in one sense to each other. We spur each other on here. And maybe after church, you come with us to lunch and hang out because literally us talking to each other, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom is how Christ dwells in us richly. If you want to stand firm, if you want to not shift from the hope, be a part of our church community and be here to be edified by each other, built up by each other, singing together and standing firm together. And there's one more thing I think uh, that as we think about how can we stand firm, how do we know Christ, is to take every opportunity you can to learn more about him, to learn more theology, to learn more about your Bible. And we try to, as a church, do this exact thing. Tonight, Issa's got that lesson on cults. I didn't plan this sermon to match up with that, but I think it exactly matches up with our thing tonight. Do you want to know how to stand firm and not shift when a cult tries to infiltrate your church? Come on out tonight. We're trying to help all of us here together be firm in our faith. We also have, like we already pointed out earlier, a systematic theology course starting in September. Do you want to know the the central tenets of the Christian faith that every Christian has believed? Do you want to know what the Bible teaches about God that everyone needs to know? Come out to our CFC course and then be, once you know those things, you can stand firm when somebody comes and tells you weird things. What about scripture this? What about Jesus that? You can say, no, I know what scripture says. Make every effort that you can to know scripture, to be a part of the church so that you can stand firm. I also think another way that this applies to our faith is just to say that for those of us who sometimes struggle with um, wondering if we even can be saved, wondering if we've sinned one too many times, wondering if Jesus is powerful enough to save even a wretch like me. When we look at this passage and see how Christ is supreme over all creation, we can cling to him to have assurance in our faith. The fact that Christ is over all things, everything is sustained by him, everything is for him, should give us so much confidence and assurance in our faith. It's like, it's like Romans 8, right? Where it talks about nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, heights, depths, angels, demons, rulers, powers, anything. Nothing can separate you from him. Why is that? They're all his. He's in charge of them. He controls them. He sustains them. How could something take you away from God when he's the one sustaining it? He can just, boom, it's gone. Nothing can separate you from him because he is supreme over everything. And so we can take comfort when attacks come on our faith, when doubts come and we're worried. We can remember that Christ is supreme and nothing can take us away from him. I almost feel like we can stop right there. Just that alone makes me feel like I can stand more firm in my faith. But Paul doesn't stop there. He thinks there's more that will help us to be steadfast. And he starts again in verse 18. He says this, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The next point that scripture has for us this morning to help us stay firm, to help us not shift from our hope, is to say that we should continue because Christ has reconciled all things by his cross. This is incredible. The supreme, preeminent creator of all things actually entered into his own creation, took on flesh in order to reconcile people to himself and to reconcile this broken creation. Paul starts by saying in verse 18 that he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Basically what Paul is saying is he was already preeminent in creation. He already created it. He's already firstborn over it. It's his. But now Christ is going to come and he's going to make a new creation. And in order for him to be preeminent in that new creation, in order for him to be the head of this new creation, he came, he died, and by his death and resurrection and his blood spilled, reconciled and redeemed this new creation for himself. And now, not only he was already preeminent, now he's preeminent in the new creation because he's the firstborn from the dead into this new glorified body. He is the head of this new creation that he creates, the church. And how did he do this? Paul explains in verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, through him to reconcile to himself. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19, in case uh, verses 15 and 16 didn't make you think that Jesus is divine, is God, Paul just says it in verse 19. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ is fully God and fully man. Paul says it again in Colossians 2, 9, basically the same thing. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul is driving home here is that supreme creator who is God, fully God, came into creation to die, to fix it, to save it, to reconcile it. What's implicit in this passage here is the reality that back in the garden, God created this perfect, beautiful, good world and sin completely screwed it up. And now there's no more peace. People are enemies of God. Everything's a mess. And not only does Christ redeem people for himself when he comes in his death, but he actually makes peace in heaven and on earth. Something happened in the garden that broke everything and Christ came to fix it. We saw this in Revelation, right? It's this already not yet reality. Christ in his death and resurrection makes peace for everything, but we can look outside and see that there's not total peace yet. But we just read those last few chapters of Revelation where the new heavens and the new earth, we will finally experience that peace that Christ won on the cross and that he has been expanding through his church. Again, I think this section, if the first section didn't make you more confident in your faith, more assured of your faith, hopefully this next part will. Not Christ not only is supreme over everything, but he actually entered into his creation to save you. He entered in creation to save his people. And he's the firstborn from the dead. First Corinthians tells us that because he's firstborn from the dead, he's the firstfruits, we also will be reconciled with him. So again, if you're tempted to doubt your faith, if you're tempted to wonder if you can make it to the end, if you're tempted to wonder if you can even be saved, the supreme creator of the universe entered in to creation to make a people for himself, a new creation, and he will hold you fast. The other main application I think that we draw out from here is that because he's the head of the church, because he's the firstborn from the dead, we should follow him as our master. He is the head of the church. It's not, this is a common analogy throughout the New Testament. The hand doesn't tell your body what to do. The hand doesn't go, hey, we're going over here, let's go. The head does that. Christ is in charge of his church. He is in command. And I think that means two things for us. First of all, that as a church, as Christian Fellowship Church, everything we do, we try to submit to Christ. 
We try to do everything we can in our services and all the things we offer and all the things we do together. We want to be exalting Christ. He is our head and we obey him. But it also uh, is a personal obedience for each one of us. He's our master. We were, we were slaves to sin and he bought us at a price of his own blood. And so now all of us have to obey what he says. If you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, he bought you at a price, he is your master. And so you follow him and you obey what he says. That means when you're reading through scripture, pouring over scripture, and you come to a verse like Colossians 3.16 that tells us to sing to one another, and you're like, ah, I don't really like singing. You sing anyway, because Christ commanded it. He's our head, and he knows what's good for us, and he has secured our salvation for us, and so we follow him. Paul started this section, started his letter by reminding them of the gospel. Then he zoomed way out, to see this cosmic creator Christ. He zoomed in a little bit to see where this Christ then entered into his own creation to save it. And now finally he zooms all the way in in verse 21 to the Colossians themselves. And he turns to them and he says this, verse 21, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The final reason that we have this morning for why we should be continuing steadfastly in our faith is because Christ has reconciled us. Because Christ has reconciled you, because of the gospel, you should continue steadfastly in the hope of that gospel. Verses 21 and 22, Paul basically circles back around to what he said in 13 and 14. It's, it's the gospel straight up. He's reminding the Colossians, that, hey, remember how you used to be alienated? You used to be hostile towards God? You used to be doing evil deeds? Well, now you're reconciled. Now you're blameless. Now you're holy. Now you're above reproach. And for those of us in here this morning who have placed our faith in Christ for our salvation, this is glorious, amazing news that each and every one of us, before we were in Christ, were alienated from him. A gigantic gulf so far separated from God, there was nothing we could do, totally alien to him. And and Paul uh, leaves us no room for, for mistaking this. It's not like we were on the other side of the chasm, like, God, we're alienated, come help us. We're, we're so far from you, we can't get there. No, we were on the other side of the chasm, hating God. We weren't looking across the chasm, we were going the whole opposite direction. We were hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds. That's every person apart from Christ. But praise God that for those of us who have repented and put our faith in him, we're reconciled. His death reconciles us. His righteousness is imputed to us. All of our evil deeds are remembered no longer, and we are now clean, pure in Christ. We're we're holy. We're blameless. We're above reproach. This is amazing news for all of those who accept the gospel. I also think, though, these verses should probably be terrifying to you if you are not in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, if you've never repented and placed your faith in him, right now, you're alienated from him, far from him, unable to reach him. And again, maybe you don't realize this or maybe you don't think this is true, but you're hostile towards him. You hate him. You're doing evil deeds. Even your good deeds are filthy rags and you're in trouble because the very, you are an enemy of the very God who is sustaining you right now. This cosmic, beautiful creator Christ who is giving you breath at this moment, if you're not in him, you're at enmity with him. You're not reconciled to him. You're an alien, an enemy of Christ. 
And then that follows that in verse 22, you're not reconciled, you're not holy, you're not blameless, and you are not going to be above reproach in the last day standing before the judge. So I pray that anyone in here this morning who has never accepted the gospel, who has never repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, don't wait any longer. You can be reconciled and blameless and holy. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You can be a child of God. You can be adopted into his family. All you have to do is repent and place your faith in him for salvation. And I pray that you would not wait, but that you would do it now so you can be reconciled and saved. Paul ends ends this section of Colossians, verse 23. This is what we've been driving at the whole time. This is the crux of this passage. This is why Paul did this whole beautiful Christ hymn. Verse 23, all of that reconciliation, all of that gospel hope, he leaves the Colossians with a warning. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Like I've already mentioned a couple times, these Colossians were embattled, false teachings. Paul is worried they're going to shift from their hope and be disqualified and be out. What Paul is saying here in verse 23 is that if, if you don't make it to the end, like if you get to the end of your life and you've abandoned the faith, you've walked away from it, or if you've placed your faith in a false gospel, you, you really believe that if you do this other thing, you'll be saved, but not Jesus, those people aren't reconciled. If, if big giant if in verse 23, you have to persevere in your faith. If you walk away, Colossians, if you let these people trick you into these other things, you're in trouble. Um, I think what Paul is talking about here also is not, it's, the, it's your personal faith. Obviously, if you yourself don't have faith in Christ, you're not going to be saved. But it's also, like I said, the incorrect faith. If it's the faith of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's how he ends it. There's, there's a certain faith, a certain correct gospel that the Colossians have to hold to in order to make it. Now, you've probably noticed uh, that there's some tension here, I think, in this verse. Because all the way through the sermon, I've been talking about how Christ, he holds us. He's supreme. Nothing can separate us from him. So I think this verse, 23, begs the question, can, can you even fall away from the faith? Like Paul, Paul, look at verse 22. He says, you Colossians, he has now reconciled you. Past tense. It's done. You are reconciled. You are holy, blameless, above reproach. That stuff's done. You're reconciled already. But then verse 23, well, only if you continue. So which one is it? This is a tension that we see throughout all of Scripture, all the New Testament, this tension between the work that Christ does for us to save us and our half of the equation, our our responsibility in our salvation. Um, Again, you can see in this verse, past tense, he's reconciled us, but only if you make it. If you flip back two pages into Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 say, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in, my abs- as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here, Paul tells Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians, what are you doing? Work out your salvation. Why? For, because, verse 13, because it's God who works in you. So which one is it? Are the Philippians supposed to work out their salvation, or is it God that's working in them? Uh, it's both. This is, again, a tension we see throughout the New Testament. I think as we look at our passage in Colossians, I think there's three ways we can think about this to help flesh it out. The first one is this. Warnings like this in Scripture, verse 23, warnings are there in Scripture to urge us on in our faith. If the first half of this passage was all uh, about how Christ secures us, Christ has us, Christ reconciles us, and for those Christians who are worried about that, they're like, yes, I can lean on Christ for salvation. Uh, 
This warning is for those lazy Christians who are like, yeah, I'm reconciled. I can do whatever I want. I don't need to guard against attack. No, Paul says, you are reconciled, but you need to be ready to not shift from the hope. All the warnings that we have throughout scripture are to spur us on, to remind us, hey, you need to be pursuing Christ because he has saved you. Again, why are we pursuing Christ? Why are we standing firm in the faith? It's because of verse 21 and 22. He reconciled us. That's why we do it. We shouldn't brush off warnings in scripture as if, well, we're safe, whatever. Nothing can touch us. I'm not going to worry about it. Paul seems to have a real concern for the Colossians in 2.18 where he says, hey, don't be disqualified. Don't fall away. So we shouldn't brush off warnings. Warnings should remind us that because Christ has saved us, we live for him. And we try to stand firm in our faith. Another way to think about this tension here in this passage is that it speaks to the reality that in real life, people fall away. We, everybody knows somebody who has claimed to be a Christian, been at church, singing with us, doing things with us, and then one day they're gone. They give up, they walk away, they either go to a false gospel or totally deny the whole thing. And we see this throughout scripture as well. We see it in the parable of the sower, which we've mentioned frequently. There's two seeds in that parable that sprout. You're like, yeah, that looks like a Christian. I see, I see sprouts, I see fruit, I see something. And then boom, they're gone. Because the rocks choke them out, thorns choke them out. We also see it in 1 John 2.19, where John tells them, hey man, all, when the people go out from among us, we know that they were never of us. It happens all the time. I think you could put it like this. The reconciled ones are the ones who make it to the end and vice versa. The ones who make it to the end are reconciled. We see who is a true Christian. You prove your faith by continuing in steadfastness. When persecution comes and you persevere, you can know, yeah, that, that is, I'm a true Christian. I'm, I'm persevering despite attacks. And when we see the people who make it to the end, those are the people who have been reconciled. And so we should be, again, heeding this warning, working to prove the fact that, yeah, we're in. We, we will stand firm. Nothing will shake my faith. I will stand firm and not shift from the hope. And finally, one last way to think about this tension in this passage is just to say that God uses means to do his work. This happens in, we, we know this happens in salvation, right? It's not like God just zaps you. You've never heard of Jesus Christ in your entire life. You wake up the next morning, oh, Jesus, I follow him, I'm saved. That's not how it works. God uses human means to bring people into his kingdom. He uses preachers and evangelists and people like you who are sitting in the seats who talk to your neighbor about Christ and plant those seeds there. God uses us as human means to bring about the salvation of his people, to bring all the people into the fold. And I think it's the same way with persevering the saints. He uses means to persevere you. It's not like as soon as you're saved, he just plucks you out of the world and just speeds you on to the end and then you're totally fine forever. Uh, That's not how the Christian life works. God uses trials. God uses doubts. God uses attacks on your faith to strengthen your faith so that you can persevere to the end. God uses this life and warnings and hard work to get through this life to persevere us. He works in and through everything that happens so that we can, in fact, persevere to the end because we are reconciled in Christ. What does that actually look like? What does it look like to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel? These words here, stable and steadfast, are reminiscent of a house that's built on a firm foundation that when the waves and wind come, it doesn't shift. We need to first of all be firm in our own faith itself. We need to be in prayer, crying out 
to Christ, to God, saying, God, please help me to live for you today. Please help me to continue in this faith. If an attack comes, God, give me strength. We need to depend on God in prayer. We need to, again, all the things we've been saying. We read our Bibles, we join in the church, and we work on our own faith. We work out our own salvation, like Philippians said. But I think also, like we mentioned earlier, we have to understand the true faith so that we don't shift from the right faith, from the historic faith, from the faith that Paul preached, this faith that's proclaimed in all creation. And so that is what we, as we head out today, thinking about this verse, this passage in Colossians, as we try to stand fast in our faith, we look to our Savior, who is the great creator of the universe. We look at him and we realize that he became incarnate for us to reconcile us. We look to him and remember how he saved even a wretch like us. And the more that we can look to him and know the true Christ, the more we will be able to stand firm in our faith. It's because of who Christ is, this preeminent creator, God, this God who came in and reconciled us, that we are able and that we should continue steadfastly in our faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we believe in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful passage where we learn about who Christ is. Thank you, Father, that you made a way for salvation. That even though we broke the world, that sin corrupted your good creation, that you came bodily, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, to reconcile us by your death and resurrection. Father, I pray that each of us would be spurred on to live faithfully for you, to not shift from our hope when attacks come because you have saved us. And we can cling to you, our magnificent God, knowing that you will help us to make it to the end. Father, as we pray now, as we sing now, I ask that we would sing uh, with our eyes on Christ, knowing what a beautiful Savior it is that we are worshiping here together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.